Hey, everybody, and welcome to Let's Pod This. This is an emergency pod. Uh, I guess we could call this a state of emergency pod. Uh, Due to the coronavirus pandemic, as you all know, a state of emergency has been declared at the city, state, and federal levels. These declarations have some far-reaching impacts and consequences, and frankly, we are in uncharted waters as a state, as a nation, and arguably as a globe, right? So here to help us walk through everything that's happened in the past, I don't know, 48 to 72 hours are my co-hosts, Bailey Perkins. Hello. Hello. And Scott Melson. What's up, dude? What's up, guys? So, uh, and listeners, just so you know that we are again uh, recognizing some social distance. Uh, We are using Squadcast, which I just learned about today, uh, to record this from our respective homes. So we have much more than six feet um, of distance. Now, if you hear any dogs involved or children or uh, spouses, that's because we're not in the quiet home of our studio. Uh, our studio had a bit of an eventful night. Uh, someone broke into the building and spent the night in the building and okay, was found, dude, if, if, found was unclothed like, today. <laughs> it's like, if you're going to talk about it, you got to tell what really happened, which is that our, our generous, our generous landlords, the, uh, the the kindly law firm that lets us use a have a studio in their space walked in the office this morning to find a buck naked man uh <laughs> wandering around the office and helping himself to some of our bourbon he he but he used a glass he drank he uh was it clearly had some mental health issues and they did not press charges they said this is a mental health emergency but yeah they i guess one of the staff walked in and he was heard her coming and so he hid in the supply closet and he said, Cox Communications. And she was like, okay. But I guess he forgot he was naked. And so that blew his cover. <laughs> well, so, just, just one clue. He did. He just moved stuff around. Like he's, we have a, a refrigerator in the closet that we use for our studio. And he like stocked the fridge with reams of paper and just moved stuff around, dumped some things out. He unpacked our little, my little roller cart. Um, but it was all on the table, just um, things. So I hope he's getting the help he needs. But he found the bourbon. Well, yeah, it's right by the door. Uh, but he used the glass, so we'll we'll watch all that. We sanitized everything. Um, but yeah, quite a start to the morning. Anyway, uh, back to the present day and the more pressing issues. So last Friday, that was the thirteenth. President yes. Trump declared a national state of emergency, which was followed by a similar declaration on Sunday from the mayors of Oklahoma City and Stillwater, as well as Governor Stitt. We are recording this on Monday evening. And so far today, I've seen that the mayors of Yukon and Tulsa have mm-hmm. also declared states of emergency. I'm sure many others. Norman. Well. Norman, yes, I'm sure a bunch of others as well. Um, just the largest cities in the state and the ones that probably get the press on that. Additionally, uh, late this afternoon, the Oklahoma State Department of Education canceled school throughout the state until April 6th. The Cherokee and Chickasaw tribes uh, have closed their casinos. Uh, Most of the casinos in Las Vegas are closed also for what that's worth. 
The Oklahoma legislature announced that they are making significant changes to their operations to expedite passage of the budget and other constitutionally required duties. And then yesterday, uh, the CDC said that all public events with 50 or more people should be canceled for the next eight weeks. And then today they doubled down on that and said, not just public events with 50 or more people, um, not even public events, public or private events with, with uh, anyone, any more than 10 people should be canceled. So, which is basically anything, right? So, you know, and aside from that, a, a ton of states have like canceled or like closed or cities at least have closed restaurants and bars. Um, San Francisco is the great example of that. San Francisco, yeah, they they may be the most extreme. Like the they whole are city on lockdown. Yeah, seven million people are under mandatory, like like can't leave your house starting at midnight tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, the exact the uh, exact term. We find it here. I had it. I had it queued up. This is what happens when we do an emergency pod, um, <laughs> <laughs> and I haven't prepared. No, uh, San Francisco. Shelt is uh, ordered to shelter in place. Yeah, what they're calling it. So every seven million people, like, I, don't leave your. You can't leave your house after midnight. Right. Like the last time I heard that term, uh, <clears throat> when I was living in South Texas during Hurricane Ike. Right. They said hunker down and shelter in place. And so, um, if you, if you want to equate this to a hurricane of virus, I guess um, I think it's just clear. It's evident. You know, there's so, two. There's, Go ahead. I, uh, I think uh, my my lovely wife, I think, started, a, uh, I think when she truly appreciated my level of anxiety over the weekend was that uh, I started rewatching Scrubs, which was <laughs> like when I had when I was when I was a resident and had a particularly long, particularly awful or particularly, you know, stressful night on call or a series of shifts or whatever the case may be, my um, for whatever reason, my my like anxiety diffuser was always watching scrubs and it was, I didn't even think about it. We were on, we were at home on Saturday and I just was like, I switched it on and she was like, um, why, why, why are you watching scrubs? You know what? It's been four years since you've watched an episode of scrubs. What's going on? Alert. Uh, alert. <laughs> That's funny. I, I think listeners would assume it was the West wing. So it's nice to know something new about you, Scott, that it's, <laughs> No man, people, and I, I'm only going to throw this out, throw this out there. And I, I don't know if I've said this on the show before or not, but people they don't ask as much anymore. But like back in the day, like when ER was on, and then there was Grey's Anatomy, and then there was like all you know, I mean, there's there still are some, but I, I feel like we went through like a 10 year period where there was like all these medical shows on TV, and people would always ask like, are any of them realistic? And the answer is no. Right. But if you want the one, if you want the one that most captures like um, kind of the ethos of like what it often can be like to be a physician and and specifically a resident, it's Scrubs. It's not Grey's Anatomy. No, it is not Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> <laughs> it's not Grey's Anatomy. Well, uh, man. So I don't know where to begin exactly, but how about we start by talking about what a state of emergency declaration is, why it's important, uh, and why there are different ones. And then maybe we'll walk through kind of the implications of them at each level, because they're a little bit different, right? So Bailey, do you want to start by kind of explaining why we have so many different declarations of states of emergencies? 
Absolutely. A lot, of, a lot of plurals in there. Indeed. And so we had different levels from the local level to the state level to our federal government where our president declared a state of emergency. Uh, the reason it's important, um, especially at the federal level, um, it's because it allows the president to be able to unlock funds to address anything that could be considered a disaster or any type of severe or imminent danger that may be coming forth. So it gives him the opportunity to be able to support states and local governments as they prepare to mitigate um, whatever is preparing to happen. So uh, state emergencies can be declared for uh, weather-related disasters. That's what most Oklahomans are used to, is hearing mm -hmm. state of emergencies if there's um, a tornado or some type of um, other natural disaster. But in this case, it also can apply to public health crises. And so in this case, uh, this allows, gov I mean, President Trump uh, to unlock about $50 billion that can be released to states as they prepare for additional testing, um, as they increase their capacities in healthcare settings, um, and as they prepare organizations and nonprofits who are there to supply food and other necessities that people may need uh, during this time. And so when states and local municipalities declare a state of emergency, it enables the state or municipality to set rules and unlock things um, that are based within state statute for uh, state, uh, but for uh, local municipalities, things that are in um, code, I guess for a lack of a better way to, to phrase it. And so um, it gives like the mayor the ability to say, this is what's going to happen in Oklahoma City, gives the governor the ability to give parameters of what can or can't happen, especially has implications for city employees and state employees. Um, but the most important piece is that declaring the state of emergency gives them the ability to access those funds uh, that the president has unleashed to be able to use that to help uh, supplement the need that's coming. Part of Part of it, Bailey, right, is that it lets them, like, you know, people talk about, like, the red tape in government a lot and, like, that it's excessive and there's regulations. Isn't part of what an emergency does is it allows governments to, and, and sometimes even individual officials to, like, bypass some of that red tape, right? You don't have to yeah. get, you don't have to get approval to buy that $10,000, you know, batch of tests that you need. It doesn't have to go through, it doesn't have to go through the chain of command. You can just do it, right? You can, you can hire people without having to post the position for a certain number of days and get it approved and put it in your budget. You can, you can hire both classified and unclassified employees. You can hire employees regardless of their classification status. It's maybe a better way to put it. Like, you can, it, it frees up access to money, but it also gives state and local governments the ability to spend money without, with, with fewer restrictions. Is that accurate? I think that's a great way to phrase it because um, there are parameters that are put in place, but it definitely uh, relaxes some of those restrictions that were uh, once tangent before uh, these situations uh, were approaching. And so the best example would be some of the waivers that uh, the United States Department of Agriculture, known as USDA, granted to our um, 
our school systems. Um, they're allowing them to do alternative methods to get food to students because usually um, meals have to be served in congregate sites. Um, but if schools are canceled and kids can't congregate at school, then how will they get food? And so one example um, is the federal government allowing states to relax that requirement so that they're still able to meet need um, in this time of uh, a, a pandemic. So. Yeah. So, you know, I, I went through and kind of pulled out what it means at the national level um, first to talk, talk about specifically. So a, a national state of emergency, specifically for a public health emergency, um, it is different if it's like a natural disaster or whatever, but specifically for a public health emergency, basically enacts three laws, the Public Health Service Act, the Stafford Act, the Social Security Act, as well as some other statutes that we don't have to go into because they're kind of minor little things. The Stafford Act is the government's main mechanism for responding to major disasters and emergencies. Um, there's a fund that goes along with it that's about $40 billion that it can then use to do things like Scott mentioned to buy medical supplies and equipment. Um, often it's used with natural disasters, obviously, um, as well as public health. For example, President Clinton tapped the Stafford Act to respond to the West Nile outbreak during his administration. Uh, it also frees up federal funds for use when, quote, federal assistance is needed to supplement state and local efforts and capabilities to save lives and to protect property and public health and safety. So pretty broad there. Um, it also empowers the president to this, um, this whole thing to uh, direct any federal agency to use personnel, facilities, equipment, whatever, um, disseminate public health information, do all these things and safety measures um, that they don't normally do in ways they don't normally do it. Uh, it also unlocks powers under Section 1135 of the Social Security Act, which aims to make it easier to get medical supplies to doctors and nurses um, to where they're needed most. Similarly, this... Um, this piece of the Social Security law was used by President Obama to address the H1N1, also known as the swine flu. So as you guys have already said, like it's basically a way to unlock some money um, and to make it easier to spend. Scott, you mentioned like buying supplies. And I today, this afternoon in the White House briefing, and I appreciate that they've been doing, I guess, daily briefings, even on weekends, right? Wait, and what? We're back. Yeah. We're, we're back to daily briefings from the White House. I think so. Yeah, surprise. Well, all it took was a global pandemic. <laughs> I forgot <laughs> that stuff. So the uh, during that, someone asked uh, the president, and you know, there's six or seven people involved in these briefings in addition to the president. Uh, and but someone asked him, you know, what about tests? How many do we have? Um, how do we get them? And then, oh, and specifically. What about ventilators, respirators, masks, all those supplies, right? But specifically vents and respirators. And the president said, hey, listen, like we've ordered a bunch. They're on their way. Like, of course, you know, he's like, we've ordered more than anybody. We've got a lot, very many. They're all coming. All the ventilators, all yeah. the ventilators. He didn't say how many, but he said, we've ordered a bunch. However, he had a call with, I guess, all the governors today and basically told them, if you've got a way to order them, go ahead and do it because you might get it quicker rather than going through 
the federal government's red tape or waiting for them, which I think is a very smart move, if true, you know, big if true, because we've all worked with government in some capacity. We know that you run it up the chain and it may come back down the chain, but it can take weeks sometimes, right? And you and it someone may mess like that person <laughs> may get the coronavirus and drop the ball. And so if you want to ensure that for your state or your jurisdiction that you are getting the supplies you need, just go ahead and do it. And I think for one, that allows the flexibility for states to like call up, you know, Cardinal Health or Henry Shine or whoever their supplier is and order that stuff directly. Because if the warehouse is in their state, like you don't want to get it shipped to DC just to ship it back to you. Like, let's get it here now. Yeah, I you know I think this is this is important because I mean it's important because it's very I think good policy. That's obviously the most important. It is interesting to me what a marked shift in tone we had from the president today versus what we've had from the president up to now right like um it was just interesting i don't know like i don't know what has happened to kind of change his perspective on or at least seem to change his perspective on how serious uh, a crisis this is um but it seems to me like it's shifted and that's uh, refreshing well there's even a newt gingrich yeah. editorial <laughs> from newsweek uh, where that. he talks about his time in Italy because he lives in Italy now. Where he talked about how who, who knew that? What a surprise! <laughs> right, right. Who would have known that? Um, but where he's talking about how these reports aren't fabrications from the media that is really as severe as they're being. Um, talked about and how America's making the right moves by taking it seriously. And so it seems like we're rising nationally, we're rising above any type of um, partisanship and really looking at it as the public health crisis that it really is. Coronavirus is not a member of a political party. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's move down to the state level then and talk about specifically what the governor's executive order which was Executive Order 2020-07, um, issued March 15th. What that means... I mean, better late than never, but mm -hmm. it finally happened. <laughs> Preach! So we, it was down to just Oklahoma and Maine, right, that were the last two to declare this. And they both did it yesterday. I haven't looked to see specifically what time that happened, um, but it was down to the wire. And we were either... We were either 49 or 50, so uh, maintaining, well, the, maintaining the status quo here in Oklahoma. Yeah, and as I'm sure all of our listeners have seen, you know, the governor was at uh, a local food hall on, is that Saturday night? It was Saturday night, yeah. So then the next day, and with his kids, and that, the screenshot, he tweeted about being there, and I get he's trying to support local businesses who are, we can talk about the economic impacts of this in a minute, but I think the backlash was swift and far reaching. I mean, I saw Soledad O'Brien tweet about it. Like it was um, pretty widely. If you Google Oklahoma state of emergency, the first hit is a CNN article that says like the day after at a restaurant, the governor declares state of emergency. And so. Yeah. I was going to say, I think the frustration from 
people who are adding criticism is that you're doing press conferences and telling everyone to abide by guidelines of health officials and the CDC guidelines, and then you take a picture that's not aligned with the very thing that you're telling the public that they should do. And so I think there's just some confusion about, do you want us to abide by this or do you not want us to abide by it? And, and not only that, but even after like all of this backlash, his spokesperson responded in an email on Sunday and said, we're going to keep living our lives. We're going to keep taking our family out to dinner. We're going to keep going out to shop. We're going to keep doing these things that we do. And then literally like six hours later, he declares a state of emergency. He doesn't notify the press. The press like found this in like the state filings. And then he released a video on his Facebook page. I mean, I don't, I, it, it's just, it was very surreal, like 24 hours. And I mean, to signify like how big of a deal this was, not only was Soledad O'Brien and Chris Hayes and Rolling Stone and like everybody and their mother talked about this on Twitter Saturday night. It was a question in the White House press conference <laughs> today. The yeah. president of the United States was asked, what do you think about the governor of Oklahoma tweeting from a restaurant a selfie on Saturday night saying, hey, it's packed out here. Life is good. Like, I mean, even President Trump tweeted social distancing. So it's a strange moment yeah. at this point. It is well, and and uh, the the president's response to that question, Scott, was that <laughs> uh, things things aren't very severe in Oklahoma. They don't have very many cases. Uh, I don't know about that. You should. He should. People should follow the experts' advice. Like that was the last part of it. He tried to like rationalize it, and he was like, "Just follow what the experts say." Like I think he realized that's the right answer there. So. Yeah, not the shiny moment for Governor Stitt. It, he's in a hard spot, as are the governors, but um, or the the mayors. Anyway, so the governor's declaration, state of emergency, is uh, highlights it's an impending threat from COVID nineteen. Um, it allows state agencies to make necessary acquisitions. Basically, anything is capped at two hundred and fifty thousand dollars per transaction. Uh, so they can spend lots of money. If that seems high, that's because medical supplies are really expensive. heavy and expensive. expensive. Uh, yeah, so all the usual stuff. And then in addition, he directs all state agencies as follows. To transmit a clear delegation of authority for state agency directors and designate an emergency management liaison by the end of the day today, the 16th. Establish and, if necessary, implement a remote work policy that balances the safety and welfare of state employees with critical services they provide. It encourages Oklahomans interacting with agency services to utilize online options wherever possible. This reminded me to go online and pay my parking ticket for the city. Um, to ensure continued compliance with a previous executive order, which limits out-of-state travel and then to promulgate any emergency rules necessary to respond to the emergency and comply with everything. Basically, here's all the, you can do a lot more stuff. And then specifically, you guys got to make a plan uh, and and write it down. And like, so we know who's doing what, who's in charge and don't, don't go anywhere. Stay home, don't go anywhere. Yeah. All right, so that's the city level. And then down to the, or that's, excuse me, that's the state level. State level, yeah. 
Well, one more one more thing at the one more thing at the state level. This is not part of the emergency declaration, but the Oklahoma State Board of Education did meet today at 4 p.m. I'm sure other, everyone knows this. Uh, our public schools across Oklahoma will be closed until April the 6th. Um, you know, I left my uh, I left my crystal my crystal ball glasses at home today, but uh, I I think it may be longer than April the sixth. We'll see. Right. So that's three full weeks. So this week is spring break for most folks, and then two additional weeks after that, and they will revisit it. Right. And you know, I think from what the White House said today, they expect peak virus, whatever that means, uh, peak virus to be either in a month or in like three months, uh, which that would have, that's about the range I would guess. I know Scott, you and I texted about this. It's a little unclear how they're defining peak virus. Like, because if we successfully flatten the curve, as we've all seen on social media, then theoretically peak virus could be in three months and that's what we want. Right. Right. As a, it, unless I, I might, the way I read it was that, that, if it's like the unflattened curve, right? The big sharp peak would just be really steep for three months and then start going down. And that is definitively a worst case scenario, right? Yeah, I think there's a couple ways to read that. So one, you can read it as like, there's the unflattened curve, the worst case scenario where you have this exponential sharp peak over the next you know three to four weeks. Um, that's the scenario where hospitals, ICUs, the healthcare system is overwhelmed and we're having to make some really, really tough choices about how we take care of people. That's the worst case scenario. And you can look at it as that scenario in a month from now versus flattening the curve where peak virus happens, but it's, you know, instead of having all these infections over the course of three months, we have these infections over the course of 12 to 16 to 18 months. I think one other way that you can take that as well, though, is to say, okay, there are some folks, and and this is not, um, I want to be clear, I don't think that there is data for this, or if, like if there is data for it, I haven't seen it, but the folks that are talking about this are not like quacks, right? Like there's, these are hypotheses that are reasonable. Um, there is a thought that even if you flatten the curve, we might see peak virus in about a month, because as we get into later spring and early summer, many of the natural conditions that predispose to viral transmission will start to get better. And so there is one thought that you could kind of flatten the curve, but also see viral transmission start to diminish as we get into the summer months because of changes in the weather, people's activity patterns, et cetera, et cetera. So like from the comments of the press conference, I don't think it's clear which scenario they're talking about, but I think there's more than one. Does that make sense at all? Yes. I mean, I think the takeaway is that they don't know what the hell to expect, and we're just all trying to plan for the worst case scenario in hopes that we can avoid it. Yeah. Well, I and mean, speaking I'm... of that, as we talk about the local state of emergencies and local um, policies that have been put in place, I'm just saw a post by um, the vice mayor or councilman, uh, Stephen Tyler Holman from Norman. And he just posted about uh, recommended um, amendments for um, the city of Norman uh, declared by Mayor Bria Clark. 
um, these regulations to would reduce um, would help reduce the spread of coronavirus. And she's looking at starting um, effective 8 p.m. on Wednesday, March 18th, to have a prohibition on dine-in services for restaurants with no restrictions on drive-through, drive-in, takeout, or delivery, and closures of bars, lounges, taverns, private clubs, gyms, health studios, theaters, and commercial amusement facilities. So they're going to be discussing this in a press conference tomorrow um, at 3 p.m. on Tuesday, March 17th, tomorrow at City Hall. So that's the first of the massive restrictions that we're seeing in other places across the country. So, and I would I would encourage listeners, um, you can do this on your own, right? And we've and I'm sure most of our listeners have seen this, you know, across the state. Um, things Oklahoma City and Tulsa events are canceling, um, venues are closing, uh, re- a lot of restaurants are are pivoting towards those kind of you know takeout or drive through. Um, my wife and I had this discussion last night, and I I shared it on Twitter as well that you know there's we have a lot of friends that work in the restaurant industry, family as well, and um, trying to find ways to support them. You know we're we're able to eat out more than some people. And so it's like, you know what? I know we try to limit that, but I think this week maybe we should eat out a little bit more um, just to try to help keep these folks, help them along a little bit, even if it's a scenario where they end up not being able to make it, right? If they got to be closed for two months, three months, and they just can't, it's got to close, then maybe we can help keep that line cook employed for another week or two, which means the difference for their family, you know? Um, I mean, so. and, and we'll see what, ha- we'll see what happens. I mean, let me first say, I 100% agree with everything you're saying. Like the more you can do to support local business while maintaining like the social distancing protocols that the health experts are advocating, like any, anything you can do is important. I also think though, this, like this is an opportunity to see like now obviously like i'm a bleeding heart progressive liberal so you know i like government but like this is an opportunity for the good that government can do government does some things really poorly it does some things really well one of the things government does really really well is give people money right the government is really good at writing people checks and part of what these emergency declarations and stimulus packages are designed to do is hope Right, that these local restaurants that maybe can't pay people for four to six weeks or six to eight weeks, because when you don't have money coming in, you can't make payroll, is keep them afloat, right? Small business loans, like no interest loans, like unemployment insurance. Like this is where we need our government to step in and take care of take care of businesses, but by taking care of businesses, take care of people. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think this will be a great time to to mention that Congress um, a few days ago passed a bill that would help with the emergency coronavirus relief. Um, and it does a number of things. Um, it adds paid sick leave for workers. Um, it allows free coronavirus testing for everyone, including the uninsured. Um, it increases funding. Um, for food assistance programs, um, and it strengthens unemployment insurance benefits for those folks who are going to um, 
experience being furloughed or lose their jobs in this season where um, the economy isn't going to be as strong as it had been. And so uh, that bill um, is now on the Senate side waiting for um, an opportunity to be heard um, over there. And so we'll see if that uh, piece of legislation at the federal level moves, because if it's signed into law by the president, then that'll be a um, huge win for, for workers and will provide relief for, for a lot of people during um, this time of uncertainty. Yeah, I saw uh, Mitt Romney tweet today that he thinks the government should give every adult $1,000 a month until this ends, right? Which would be similar to what they did after the Great Recession, right? Ten, was, how long ago was that? Did, uh, did he endorse Andrew Yang? <laughs> I didn't. We, we got a UBI policy. When did, when, did Mitt Rom, when did Mitt Romney endorse Andrew Yang? I missed it. Universal basic income. How here we are. But I think that's. I mean, you know, that's going back to if I go back to my MBA textbooks, like trying to trying to price out across the country. Obviously, it's different for different people, but a thousand dollars a person would would make the difference between surviving and not for. Right. A, whole bunch of, a whole bunch of people. I mean, studies have shown repeatedly in, in, in recent years that like when you if if you define poverty and I, I mean, I don't know if this is a reasonable definition or not, but there are a lot of studies that do this. If you define poverty as whether or not you can access two thousand dollars in case of an emergency without mm-hmm. having to rely on a credit card, about 55 percent of Americans live in poverty. Yeah. So, and I mean, like, and we're going to see that here in a hurry, right? right. Like, like uh, that is, that's the kind of difference that that, like, that's the kind of difference that could make. Yeah. Um, well, um, we're already seeing it at um, the top with the Federal Reserve um, dropping about $1.5 trillion into the economy to help provide businesses and corporations with relief. And so we definitely need to see it. Um, on the bottom rung as well for everyday Americans to also have that relief that's necessary. The, uh, yeah, the airline industries uh, issued a statement today saying they need 50 billion in order to make it. And that like, I think their best case, even with that is that by June, they would be like 15 billion in the hole. And I was like, man, I'm not, obviously airplanes are a huge benefit. but like, haven't we bailed them out already once? Like they are perpetually struggling. And don't um, they guess... charge me twenty five dollars to carry a bag <laughs> on the plane? <laughs> well, I mean, so it, it was twenty years ago, right? Nineteen years ago that we had September eleventh attacks, right? And they took a huge hit after that, and that's when we had to bail them out. And then this happens again. Two things in twenty years is perhaps remarkable, but perhaps it's the new norm. We, I mean. It takes two dots to make a line, right? And so here's we've got two dots. It also well, strikes me. It's it's also the oil and gas industry. Yeah. Being yeah. A, a tanking just at the wrong time. Yeah. Yeah, I bought gas yesterday uh, for like a dollar sixty, and I was like, I got it for a dollar twenty five at the Samsung <gasps> Expressway. So, which is like what I paid in high getting school. Getting bad. Yeah. Yeah. Getting bad. Yeah. And it was twenty years ago. It was bad. Hey, hey, hey. 
you take your 20 years ago and you just <laughs> leave it at the door, son. <laughs> okay. Okay. It was okay. It was 18 years ago and not a <laughs> and not and not a day sooner. Okay. <laughs> like let's just take your 20 years ago and shove it. I won't <laughs> even comment how, uh, where I was 18 years ago. So Oh look at look at look at me! I was in fifth grade. Oh. Nice. It it does strike me today that um, that the people who were born in late two thousand one or early two thousand two, right, like in the shadow of nine eleven, are graduating high school this spring Absolutely. in the midst in the midst of this environment. And what that's some crazy bookends for your your life so far, whatever generation this is, Z or AA, I don't know what we're, what generation they're on now, but uh, that's fascinating. Well, on a sad note, there are some 2020 graduates who will not be walking across the stage. Uh, Washington University in St. Louis, I believe, announced today, uh, their president announced that um, the 2020 graduates will not have a commencement this year because of uh, this pandemic. So um, it's tough times all around. It is, although not to be the nihilist out of this, but like, do you guys remember walking across the stage for any of your graduations? I I do. <laughs> <laughs> Was it med school? It all, feels like it should be med all school. All of them. All, all of them. them. I remember. Yeah. But you I worked have, so but, hard to get to that point. So I mean, so high high school. I mean, high school. I remember because it was high school graduation. Um, I well, I don't know. Do you, you I have remember? no recollection. No, not okay. at all. Uh, college. I wasn't even going to go to my college graduation, but the I was like all good pre med students. I was in a research lab, and the like one of the faculty from my research lab was the dean of my college. So I felt like I had to go. So that's why I remember remember that. And then I do remember med school graduation. Um, yes. You know what I remember? I remember that Boz Lerman song about wear sunscreen that they played all the time on the radio that was supposedly a commencement speech somewhere. That and Steve Jobs, stay stay foolish. Those are the only two things I remember about graduations. What are you class? Are you class of ninety nine or two thousand? Ninety nine. Ninety nine. Nice. I was. Oh, my 2000. sister graduated in ninety nine. So yeah, I remember that year. Two thousand and two, baby. I'm old. Nice to have you. <laughs> nice to have you. <laughs> uh, well, as we uh, as we kind of wrap this up for this week, we wanted we'll try to do another episode on Friday that will be. Uh, covering what's happening this week in the legislature, and that's important, right? So I, we probably should say a quick note about that, is that the legislator, legislature today, each chamber had a bipartisan caucus meeting, which has never happened before. So basically, that's a, a private meeting of all the members um, that is not open to the public, as as is the case with all caucus meetings. Speaker McCall, Speaker McCall said today, he was like, this is how seriously... We're taking this situation. This in my eight years of service, we have never considered having a bipartisan caucus meeting. So apparently it is so bad that the legislature legislators have decided we all have to talk about this together. 
because usually the caucus meetings are just each party, yeah. right? Yeah. And so, yeah, so it was everyone together. And so they came out with all the leadership, uh, speaker and the pro tem, and then the minority leaders from each chamber and basically said, here's what's going to happen. We're closing the Capitol to everybody except the legislature, some staff, and the press. And I do appreciate Speaker McCall saying this, and I, I uh, tagged him on Twitter about this this evening, that he said, we want to ensure that the press is here. You guys are the watchdogs of the people. It's very important. And I was like, that's great. Amen. <laughs> Maybe next year you can stop uh, releasing agendas five minutes before the, the meeting happens and the press doesn't have to scramble around the building. But... We'll take one step at a time. Um, but they basically said, we're going to do this. The House is allowing proxy votes, which is possibly unconstitutional, but also... I was going to say, did we ever get a determination whether that's constitutional or not? No, they didn't. So uh, Keith Gaddy, friend of the pod, Keith Gaddy, was the one that had said that. Um, I guess Eccles did an interview with Trace Savage and Nondoc tonight that's supposed to be pretty personal um and you know unguarded uh and i but i said you know i think gaddy said this is unconstitutional and Eccles is basically like listen in the three scenarios could play out like the least of our concerns is whether or not we did this and they have they were in the in their press conference and every interview since then have been very specific and saying listen guys we know that this is way out of the norm we have 14 rules and we made rule 15 today and it's this we do not take this lightly speaker mccall said if they try to make this a rule next session i would not support it like these rules expire at the end of session this is a one-time deal because this is a one-time deal and uh and so yeah they they did that so we even have lawmakers who are working from home i saw a tweet from yeah. senator carrie hicks Mm -hmm. um, who announced that she would be working from home because uh, she has a, a family member who is um, is immune compromised? Is that the the term? Yeah, yeah, he's type so, one diabetes. Yep. Mm -hmm. So um, just to keep her family safe, she is working from home. Um, so the legislature is going to have to figure out how to make these accommodations. And so it really is an interesting time from a political science standpoint of of how we make government work during the pandemic. Yeah. So I think um, it sounds like their focus is going to be on getting the budget done first and then also addressing any constitutionally required provisions like executive appointments, like people for agency heads and that kind of stuff that have to be um, confirmed by the Senate. They're going to focus on that stuff. And there's a good chance that of the thousand or so bills that are left, they may just not get heard, right? Like they may... So there's a chance that old House Joint Resolution 1027 that we have um, spoken ill of in the last two episodes might just not get heard in the Senate and oh, float away this year. Taking, bring power from the, taking power from the people is going to get taken away from a pandemic. There were some very strongly worded op-eds this weekend in the Tulsa world about it. So we'll, we'll uh, see how that pans out. Anyway, so let's end on discussing where listeners can go for more information and some resources they can go to. Right off the bat, the CDC website is a great resource. Um, also, the State Department of Health website, uh, which is health.ok.gov. They have a special dedicated page for coronavirus. So coronavirus.health.ok.gov. Bailey, what else? So the 
Regional Food Bank and Community Food Bank of Eastern Oklahoma are both gearing up to help with food distribution uh, in this time when many Oklahomans um, aren't going to be going to work or are going to have limited options in being able to get nutritious foods. And so if you go to regionalfoodbank.org slash COVID, so C-O-V-I-D-19, regionalfoodbank.org slash C-O-V-I-D-19. You can find any updates about um, our partner agencies who um, are serving during this time, uh, where our programs are that are serving kids. Um, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, that because these waivers were passed, kids are going to be served even when school is out. And so make sure that you visit that website to know where the different places are, at least in 53 counties. So in the western part of the state, the northern part of the state, uh, for the eastern part of the state, you want to visit okfoodbank.org because that's where information uh, from the Community Food Bank of Eastern Oklahoma is going to be to where you can get all the updates about um, how we're serving. Um, but most importantly, um, giving during this time is the best way that you can contribute. So if you want to contribute to each of those organizations as we distribute out food uh, to our neighbors, you can give um, online at either of those websites. Yeah. Scott, do you want to talk about news coverage? Yeah. I mean, you know, <coughs> Scott, four, I, this is the fourth week Scott's been coughing. This is not a new cough. Right. I still don't have coronavirus. Um, you know, so it's, it's important. I mean, watch your local news, right? Also watch your national, your national news, make sure that you're kind of staying up to date with what the latest recommendations are. Be checking, you know, news. Okay. Tulsa world, um, lots and lots of, websites have no paywall for their coronavirus coverage. Um, you know, honestly, I I would hate to advocate anybody ever get on Twitter, but if you're on Twitter already, you can get, you can find a lot of hysteria there, but you can also find some good information. Um, the last thing that I would say- But don't believe everything you read on there. Someone was retweeting somebody the other day and their account was created in January and they'd only tweeted like 18 times and they were saying that they were an expert on something and I was like, I'm going to guess not. Well, and the two sources that I would trust the most are the Frontier, because they are doing some incredible coverage right now. Yeah, uh, 100% agree. And Nondot. Uh, one, I 100% agree. I would also say, though, just a, a couple things to remember. Um, and I don't, I don't say this lightly, but this is just important to kind of bear in mind. This is a really scary time for a lot of us. I think it's probably, I think, I think if you're not scared right now, you're probably not paying very close attention. Um, it's scary if you're a potential patient. It's scary if you're a doctor or a nurse practitioner or a PA or a nurse or anybody who sees patients. Um, if you are worried that you're sick, your first move should not be to go to the ER. It should not be to go to urgent care. Honestly, it shouldn't be to go to your doctor. The first thing that you should do if you're worried that you're sick is call your doctor and talk to your doctor or talk to their nurse, explain to them what your symptoms are, and find out what you should do next. One thing that is important to remember is that a huge percentage, something like 80%, maybe 85% of folks who are infected with coronavirus and develop this syndrome are going to get better. And they're going to get better with no treatment. They have a mild illness that lasts several days, and they can recover on their own at home. 
And the reason that's important is because if you are at home, your likelihood of spreading the illness is much, much lower, right? What we are trying to do is decrease how quickly this spreads through the community so that our hospital systems, our ICUs and our emergency rooms aren't overwhelmed with the sheer number of patients who are seriously ill. So the more that you can contribute to that, the better. I know that if you, if you are, and, and I know, I know this is true because I had this experience in my clinic today. If you are worried that you have it or your doctor is concerned that you have it, you almost certainly want to be tested. I think from a public health standpoint, the more people we test, the better. However, the facts are, we just, we don't have that capacity right now. We're being told that it's coming. And if we get to a point where we can have, you know, drive-by testing the way that they're having in South Korea or Japan, I think that that would be a wonderful, like a, a great development for our community. But right now we don't. So if your doctor tells you, hey, your symptoms are consistent, your symptoms sound like they're mild, they're not progressive, the best thing for you to do is stay home and keep us posted if you're getting better or getting worse. Please listen to that. Please, please trust your doctor, trust the nurse practitioner, trust the PA, whoever it is, whoever it is that you're seeing and, and listen to the advice that you're giving you. I promise if they're telling you to stay home, it's not because they don't want to see you. It's not because they, it's it's not because they don't want to see you. It's not because they don't think you're sick. It's not because they don't think it's important. It's because the healthcare system is in the process of absorbing a huge amount of patients with limited resources. And we have to try and use those as, as best we can. Like, does that make sense at all? Makes Absolutely. sense to me. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that guidance, Dr. Scott. I do what I can. <laughs> all right. Well, on that note, uh, we will end this emergency pod and we will be back later this week uh, with our regularly scheduled episode specifically focus on whatever happens in our state government. And I'm sure there'll be some sort of coronavirus update with that um, for whatever we have. So thanks for listening. Uh, stay safe, wash your hands, and have a good week. Oh, 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 oh,